My name is Aubrey. I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to add my greeting to the greeting that Drew gave to you. Holy cow. Um, If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, it's like, uh, yeah, so several weeks ago, racism. Uh, Last week, the Christian sexual ethic. And this week, wives submit to your husbands. Um, To be honest with you, I've dreaded preaching on this passage more than any of the other two. This is more difficult for me. I grew up in a culture that, um, for whatever reason, the Christian sexual ethic, it doesn't intimidate me to talk about it in public settings. Um, I take hits for it, um, but for whatever reason, that's not that difficult for me to stand with Scripture on. But this morning's passage is very difficult for me to talk about. Um, it, 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 it is more intimidating for me to talk about. I am more um, embarrassed by it. That's not quite the right word, but it is harder for me to live with it than it is the Christian view on race, which um, is quite easy for me to stand on. I, I, would, I would take great pleasure in anybody messing with me on that. Um, the Christian view of sexual ethic, um, I've just had to, to stand with it for so long that I'm just used to getting made fun of for it. Um, but the Christian view on gender roles is very difficult. So let's pray. Father, it's with fear and trembling that I come to you at this moment. There, are, there is so much pain. There are so many wounds. So much abuse has been justified by this passage of Scripture. Please help me, help us. So many of us, God, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher. And your great glory, our supreme concern, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Um, So that you don't have to wait with fevered anticipation, let me just put something on the table. This passage of scripture reveals to us that God's will is for households to be organized in a particular way. And that involves the husband as head and the wife as submissive. Now, like I said, you try saying that in public. How would you feel? (laughs) Um, I can imagine as those words came out of my mouth that there were many different reactions in this room. Some people it triggered Massive memories of trauma, abuse. For some of you, I know there are people in this room that you perhaps grew up like I did. I have never in my life seen my dad lose his temper. I've never seen anger in his eyes. I've never seen my dad act selfishly. Not ever. Some of you, you heard that 
And perhaps your response was deep gratitude and thankfulness that you're glad you're a part of a church where a pastor would say that. I think there's a thousand reactions to this view. Fear, joy, anger, confusion, despair. So what I want to do is ask your patience to not settle for a soundbite statement. But give me the next 30 minutes or so to explain what this means. Because it's different than what it sounds like in our culture at this moment. What I want to do is to begin by pushing back on Christians. There are Christians, and like I said last week, to be a Christian... One of the things it means to be a Christian is that you commit to the authority of Scripture. That Scripture is authoritative. That it is the true story of the world and it is authoritative for all of life. That's part of what it means to be a Christian. And there are Christians who believe that. That Scripture is the true story of the world and authoritative for all of life. But they interpret this passage in a way that it does not call for a husband to be head and a wife to be submissive. And I want to push against those Christians. Now, this is different than non-Christians. There are non-Christians who reject this because they just don't buy the Bible as authoritative. It's about as authoritative as some story about the bunny rabbit. That's a conversation for a different time. If you reject this because you just think it's antiquarian, because Scripture's antiquarian and Scripture doesn't hold an authoritative place in your life, that's a separate... I'm not going to deal with really important issues around that way of rejecting it. But what I want to talk to is a whole group of Christians in this room who, within a deep commitment to Scripture, have been taught that this Scripture doesn't mean what it says on the surface. And I want to take what you've been taught very seriously... And start with it. Three ways that Bible-believing Christians have been taught this passage does not mean what it sounds like on the surface. The first way is that this teaching is culturally bound. That some people claim that this passage should be read like some passages in the Bible... It's culturally relative that Paul, the author of this passage, is working out what marriage looks like in a Roman and Greek or Jewish framework. That's not true here. This is not a culturally bound teaching. In fact, this passage is as culturally problematic in the day in which Paul wrote it as it is today. This passage is radically countercultural to its original audience. The Ephesian context was one of extremes. On the one hand, you had a very traditional view of women in the Greek culture that goes back at least 400 years to Aristotle. In Aristotle's very famous work, Politics, his view of women was that they are lesser beings than men. They are, in their essence, lesser. 
the traditional Jewish context said that women were not lesser, but they were dangerous. Because the Jewish way of interacting with the world was wrapped up with laws of purity. And a woman's regular bodily functions made her, on a monthly basis, impure. And so for a man to come in contact with a woman at the wrong time made him impure. And the way this gets translated into societal norms is that women are dangerous to men. And then you had the progressive Roman view. Around this time, the time of this writing, there had become something known as the New Roman Woman. It was the elite women in Rome with real cultural capital pushing back against the very traditional views of Roman culture. And they pushed back against the double standard there was a double standard sexually. Men could have sex with slaves and prostitutes. Women, if they had multiple sexual partners, were shamed. Men were built up. And so the new Roman woman at this time was saying, that's a hypocritical double standard. We too can have multiple sexual partners. And so the there was a movement afoot and it was flourishing in Ephesus because Ephesus had two major religions for whom the center of religion was a female, a goddess. And so the new Roman woman's sexual promiscuous liberation was flourishing in Ephesus at the time. And the new Roman woman was not only about sexual things, it was about dress. The new Roman woman was pushing back against extreme forms of modesty and swung all the way over to extreme forms of immodesty. Contraceptives became in vogue and abortion. And into this highly contentious environment. With radical traditionalism on one side. And a radical kind of progressivism on the other side. This passage is profoundly countercultural. Number two. A second way that this passage gets neutralized by Christians is to say that verse 21 flattens verse 22. Verse 21 says, everyone submit to each other. And so one of the ways that some Christian traditions have dealt with the very difficult teaching here in the context of, of an environment where we've become deeply aware of the way deep South patriarchalism has resulted in lots of unhealth is that some people have said, look, verse 21 says everybody submit to one another. And then as if that takes the edge off of verse 22, as if, as if Paul was somehow dealing with multiple personalities, that he didn't know what he said in verse 21 when he vote, when he, in the very next words, said, wives, submit to your husband as unto the Lord. You can't do that. You can't treat Paul as a nincompoop. Second, I mean third. The third way that some Christians have been taught to ignore the embarrassing verse 22 is this word head. The husband is the head of the wife. In Greek, it's kephala. 
1954, an essay was written by a very good scholar where he said that this word kephalod, it, it's really a metaphor for source. Then during the 70s and 80s, this gets picked up in the church. And the idea is that in the same way a spring is the source of a river, the husband is the source of his wife, and that that's a historical statement. That it's, it's saying Adam was a historical source of Eve. Eve was produced out of Adam. That we're dealing with a historical claim here, not a sociological claim. And then the implication of that is that verse 23 in no way entails leadership or authority. Two things about this argument. First of all, that is a highly debated definition of the word. In fact, the vast majority of scholars today, conservative and liberal, discount that definition. Second, even if it is within the semantic domain of the word head, that it can mean source, in the context of Ephesians, it clearly doesn't because this word's already been used and it's about authority. Now, I wish all three of those arguments worked, just to be honest. I really do. I really wish that those three somehow could take the sting out of husbands as the head of wives and wives submitting. And by the way, the funny thing is there are some of you in this room that are feeling like, well, good for you, Aubrey, because that's how I felt last week about the sexual ethic. Look, you, you never know when Scripture's going to strike you and you have fear and trembling. And with each of us, it's at different places at times. What I propose to you, what we need to do with this very difficult passage is we need to be more suspicious of ourselves and our reason than we are of Scripture. We, we need to come to Scripture fundamentally convinced that there's brokenness inside of us that can distort even what we're seeing and hearing right in front of us. So we need to come to difficult passages of Scripture susp more suspicious of reason than we are of revelation. Let's not make the mistake of thinking that it is not possible to get this right, at least some of the time. And just because a garden grows weeds, we shouldn't pave over it with concrete. Just because there are oppressive husband and wife relationships that function with the husband as the overlord doesn't mean we should dismiss male headship altogether. So what I'm going to do is two more things. First, I want to give three fundamental commitments you need to take to this passage if you want to hear it rightly. And then I want to get very concrete. How does this play out in the concrete details of families today? So number one, first of all, three fundamental commitments required to hear what God is telling us in this passage. First of all, spousal abuse is wicked. It is a sin. It is bad. You have to bring that to this passage. 
You have to believe that Scripture does not contradict itself. That Scripture isn't, Paul isn't confused. You have to believe in the coherence of Scripture. You have to believe that all of Scripture is God's revelation with authority and the life-giving center of the universe is, is in control of this book. Spousal abuse is a terrible sin, a deeply wounding evil for a husband to abuse his wife or children physically or verbally or emotionally. It is wrong. It is wicked. And I know that this passage of Scripture has a long history of being weaponized, forcing women into subservience and obedience. And everything we're told in this passage requires a fundamental presupposition that abuse is sin. And for that matter, it goes both ways. For a woman to abuse a man physically, verbally, or emotionally is great wickedness. Second presupposition, a second commitment, is that all people are equal in dignity and value. This is a a teaching of Scripture. And it comes up in this passage. If you've got a Bible, flip to the left, just three or four pages. Galatians chapter 3, same author. Paul wrote both books, despite some new, weak arguments. Galatians 3, verse 23. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Look, Paul is not dealing with every issue in the world. What he's talking about into a midst of a highly stratified culture, a culture that attached worth based on proximity to the emperor, is he's, you're right. Your worth is on proximity to the emperor, King Jesus, and all all people have access to King Jesus. All people are equal. All people are near unto God in that sense. And here in Ephesians, Paul does the same thing in this section called the household codes. He shows in a powerful way that men and women, what he's dealing with is roles, not value and worth. See, there are many, many copies of rules for families written during this time period, both from the Greek setting, from the Roman setting, from the Jewish setting. And in no single copy of a non-biblical household code is a woman addressed. Only the men are addressed. It's only the pater familias, the male figure, the authority figure, and wives are only referenced in the Greek and the Roman and the Jewish household. Wives are only referenced as objects of control for the pater familias. But Paul addresses women directly and first. This, only in the Bible in this time period does that occur when you're talking about households. Now, what is Paul doing here? It is a massive argument that women are fully equal. They have full value with men. It's a way of giving them unprecedented dignity. They are full participants in humanity. Number three, a third assumption you have to bring 
And those first two, I imagine that many of us will be here here for. The third one is more difficult today. The third one is that gender differentiation goes beyond, beyond biology and reproductive function to roles in the house. This is a fundamental assumption Scripture makes. That gender differentiation goes beyond biology and reproductive capacity and function to roles in the house. Paul assumes that there are significant differences between men and women. Differences that go way beyond biology. That roles and relations between men and women are to be, get ready for it, complementary, not identical. Now, this is very difficult in our day because our day is wrapping up the fight, the, the, the virtuous fight for women's liberation, for women's worth, for women's value. It's tied that up into all roles are available to all genders. And as Christians, we need to be far more nuanced than soundbite debate. We have to be willing to stand with the progressive movement within our culture that is arguing very vigorously for equality. But we have to be able to critique part of it that ties equality absolutely into identical roles. Equality in voting rights, equality in employment opportunities, equality in pay, absolutely. But that is not the same as gender roles in marriage. The Bible teaches you've got to hold two things together. On the one hand, men and women are equal before God. And on the other hand, role distinctions exist. And there's a lot of hard work for us to do there. The Bible says those two things don't contradict each other necessarily, even if they do practically at moments in culture. Gender roles in marriage cannot be erased. Role distinctions in marriage do not give value increase to men. Okay. So coming to this passage as a Christian, as one who is fully committed to the authority of Scripture, coming to it with the belief that abuse is a sin, that men and women are equal, that role differentiation in a marriage does not contradict equality, these three guidelines for how the teaching of Ephesians 5.22-23 to plays out in our lives sets us up to now talk about some concrete details. Three guidelines for how we can... As Christians, live this out in our day. Number one, husbands, do not use your authority to please yourself. You only use authority to serve. Paul has redefined Family relationships by ordering it not according to tradition, but Jesus Christ. And when you read the Gospels, 
passages like the passage that Drew read to us out of Mark, you see that Jesus did not operate out of a posture of pleasing himself. Listen to Romans chapter 15. The same person that wrote Ephesians writes in Romans chapter 15 verse 2, Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up, for Christ did not please himself. That was not Jesus' posture. Jesus had all the authority, he had all the power, but he didn't use it for his own self-desires. The leadership role of the husband has to be based on Jesus' way of leading, not on some deep south patriarchal way of leading. So look, if you're going to define headship with this deep south patriarchal view, absolutely walk away from it. But there's another option. Don't be anachronistic. Don't read your culture back into the Bible. Take the Bible in its own context. Let the Bible define the words in the way the Bible defines male headship. It uses three times more words to talk to the husband in this passage than it does the wife. Because Paul knew that he was profoundly vulnerable to a cultural view of patriarchy tyrannizing what he was saying. So over and over, love your wives the way Christ loved the church. And then he defines it, giving yourself up. And then he uses another metaphor, love the wives the way you love yourself. You can feel Paul is fighting for every inch to clear out the definition of this word. The leadership role of the husband for the Ephesians is not the Greco-Roman traditional male headship. And it is not the American traditional male headship. The model for this is Jesus Christ. The Ephesians to whom Paul is writing, he's saying to them, you cannot look at your own father's heavy-handed leadership or your grandfather's heavy-handed leadership in the home. You've got to look to Jesus to know what it means to be a husband who is the head. How does this authority work its way out? I I was struck. Mike Medley is 15 years older than me, way smarter than me, way more experienced than me. He took early retirement as a head of language and literature at Eastern Mennonite University to become the parish administrator and work for me. Do any of you in this room think that my authority over him makes him less than me? Less intelligent me? Does it mean he's less decisive than me? Does it in any... Now, if Mike believes that authority is connected to intelligence or value or worth, then Mike would not be able to work for me. And here's the deal. Once you get out of your 30s, when, you start ha- when every boss you have starts getting to be younger than you, you'll have to quit too. What I'm getting at is that all of us move in circles where there's authority that we recognize, and we recognize authority in sociological structures, in our jobs, right? So Mike had people working for him at Eastern Mennonite, and he had people working over him. If Mike felt like it made him better than the people that worked for him, that's a problem, right? But that's not how, the, that's not how leadership 
flowcharts work in businesses. And it doesn't work like that in the home. This is not about value. And husbands, this cannot be about selfishness. The husband can only play the headship card if he is absolutely sure his wife or children's choice is going to harm the family. A husband cannot use headship selfishly to get his own way about the color of the car. Who gets to hold the remote? Whether he gets to have a night out with the boys when the wife wants him to stay home and help with the children. Self-centered demands by a husband are not Christ-like leadership. This role of headship is not about entitlement. That's one of the problems here in America. Male headship has been wrapped up in the good old boy system that winks, winks at men as they sow their wild oats. And we have to disentangle those things. This headship, Paul, as soon as he says it, he immediately defines it as servant headship, Christ-like headship. In a marriage, there are only two votes. And a stalemate can only be broken by someone yielding. In the vast majority of cases, the stalemate in a marriage, when the husband and wife want to go two different directions on an issue, in the vast majority of cases, as husbands and wives live out Ephesians 5.21, submit to one another. As they both have developed a character that their fundamental posture in any situation is to submit to the other person. And when, when a husband and wife come to a disagreement, when they both have been shaped with that kind of character, normally the husband says, no, we'll go your way. And the wife says, no, you'll go with your way. And now it's an arm wrestle for who doesn't get their way. The wife tries to respect the husband's leadership. The husband tries to please his wife. And if that dynamic is in place in a biblical marriage, very, very rarely will this kind of overruling male headship posture take place. But what of the occasions where both parties cannot agree? Some kind of, and a decision has, now a, a lot of times when two parties can't agree, you get the privilege of delaying the decision until you can. But there are moments in life where you can't, where a decision has to be made and there is disagreement. Someone has to have the right to cast a deciding vote and take greater responsibility for the decision. And that is the place where the Bible says the husband's the head. And that is the moment where the husband has to submit to his role. And it's a very lonely moment when the leader of any organization has to make a decision that will not satisfy the constituency. And husbands, you've got to submit to your role in that moment. And wives, you have to submit to your role in that moment. Now, this brings up a second practical way that this works out in our marriage. 
Wives, do not ever give your husband unconditional obedience. Don't ever do that. No human being is to give unconditional obedience to another human being. Only God gives unconditional obedience. There's a famous story in the book of Acts where the the leaders of Jerusalem are telling the apostles, stop preaching Jesus. And Peter stands up and says, we must obey God rather than man. In the moments where the God, where the authority structures are asking us to do something that is against God, in those moments, there is no question. There is no debate. We obey God rather than man. This is a fundamental teaching in Scripture. The husband is not the boss of the wife. This passage in no way supports a woman following her husband's lead into sinful or unlawful behavior. This passage does not set up a wife for emotional, verbal, or physical abuse. If a husband beats his wife, she should exercise love and forgive him as she's having him arrested. It is never kinder loving to make it easy for someone to do wrong. Wives, do not give your husbands unconditional obedience. And that comes to the third practical thing here. Don't be merely compliant. Bring every gift you have to the decision-making that husbands and wives have to have. Let me tell you a story to explain what I mean. I'm trying to explain what I mean when I say that a wife needs to bring all of her resources, all of her gifts to these difficult moments of decision-making. I'm going to tell you a story. It's told by a wife, a lady named Kathy Keller, the wife of Tim Keller, the, pres- the pastor, retired pastor of Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York, in her own words. In the late 1980s, our family was comfortably situated in a very livable suburb of Philadelphia where Tim held a full-time position as a professor. Then he got an offer to move to New York City to plant a new church. He was excited by the idea. I was appalled. Raising our three wild boys in Manhattan was unthinkable. Not only that, but almost no one who knew anything about Manhattan thought that this offer was good. I also knew that this would not be something that Tim would be able to do as a nine-to-five job. It would absorb the whole family and nearly all of our time. It was clear to me that Tim wanted to take the job, but I had serious doubts that it was the right choice. Now, here's an important thing. She's not saying I didn't want to do it. She's saying she fundamentally doubted it was the right thing to do. She said, I expressed my strong doubts to Tim, and he responded, well, if you don't want to go, then we won't go. And Kathy Keller responded to her husband, oh, no, you don't. You're not putting that decision on me. That is an abdication of your role. If you think it's the right thing to do, then stand up and exercise your leadership and make the choice. It is your job to break the logjam. It is my job to wrestle with God until I can joyfully support your decision. Then Kathy goes on to say, God worked in us 
and through us when we accepted our gender roles as a gift from the designer of our hearts. Now, I should at this moment tell another story where husband and wife deeply disagree and the husband breaks the logjam by saying, I'm pretty convinced that you're right because you've, you've got better wisdom on this or whatever. I'm, and he goes the other way. I, I wish that all through this sermon I could give these mutually contradictory illustrations because there are people in this room, there are wives in this room that you need to stand up and call the police. And there are wives in this room who need to shut their mouths. And there are husbands in this room who need to stop being lazy. And there are husbands in this room who need to stop being jerks. It's, this is what scared me about this sermon. Is what, One of my deep fears is that all of us have sides of this that, that we need to kind of live into different aspects of it. That's why I've tried to lay out all of these ground rules. There is nothing in this passage that affirms the traditional position on marriage. That husbands are the head because they're smarter or because they're more decisive. Well, I can tell you in our marriage, Janelle is way more decisive than me. Janelle has a far better ability most of the time to be objective than I do. I lead with emotion. I lead with relationships. Janelle leads with cold-hearted reason. (laughs) Not that it hurts or anything. (laughs) I like to shop. Janelle likes to exercise. I like to comb my hair. (laughs) Yesterday, I asked Janelle to comb her hair before going out in public. I mean, there's a thousand ways that we have the opposite of traditional roles for men and women. This is not... Um, in any way to say that the woman has to keep house and the man gets to like be a caveman. I'm not talking about any of that foolishness. Both of these take humility. Both of these have to follow Christ. Both of these positions we have to ask Christ for grace. Some of you men need to ask Christ to give you the grace to stop being a jerk. And some of you men need to ask God to give you the grace to take the responsibility you have to take. You know why we read the passage out of Judges? Because when leadership doesn't function the way it's supposed to be, it is terrible for any sociological unit. The president of IJM, International Justice Mission, that does justice work all over the world, he says over and over again in developing countries, he tends to find the 1570-15 principle. 15% of the police department are incorruptible. Under no circumstances do they take a bribe. And 15% of the police department are fundamentally corrupted and filled with bribes. And 70% will go whichever way the wind blows. And it's the 70% who can stop the corruption. There are 15% of men for whom leadership is hard and they need great grace 
to rise up and do what they're supposed to do and to repent of their wicked ways. There are 15% of the men of God's right, but there's a whole group of men who are not leading. Women, we could do the same thing. Now, here's the deal. Let me stop here and kind of back up. Willing submission to God the Father is the glory of Jesus Christ. It is the very essence of the second person of the Trinity. The very reason God exalted Jesus to his right hand and gave him a name that is above every other name was because he did not consider his equality, which he had, something to stop him from submitting. Wives, in this way, you're living into Jesus Christ. Now, husbands, we have our own submissions, absolutely, in our jobs. Verse 21, to our whole families, to God the Father. But in the relationship of husband and wife, in the area we're talking about, this is the way the wife lives into Jesus. And for three times more words, the way the husband lives into Jesus is he hasn't loved his wife until it cost him his desires. Love your wives, men, the way Christ gave himself up. If your love is not a costly love, then you're not loving your spouse. The very essence of Christ-like godliness gets played out in the marriage. And when a marriage functions this way, it is a model to the world of who Jesus is. And this is difficult. If we were living in deep south patriarchy, it would be difficult in a particular way. If we were living in a wildly progressive place where there are no gender roles, it's difficult in another way. For some of you, it's difficult because of the abuse you came from. For some of you, it's difficult. I mean, it's difficult for all of us for all sorts of reasons. But this is our calling. To be a Christian is to be distinctive. It is to be distinctive in what you do with your time. You give up Sundays. What you do with your money, you give 10% of your money to the church. What you do with your body, you are generous with your money and very selfish with your body. And it is to be distinctive in how our families are ordered. This is what it means to be a Christian in the world today. In the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit.